to take care of these more minor things. And the real big important things, you take care of those. Um, it's important that we have that in mind because that comes up when we uh, hear about uh, how the Apostle Paul talks about the church as one body and that those who have been assigned leadership roles are not just fulfilling an office, a function, but it is for the purpose of equipping the saints, it says in verse 12. And as the saints are being equipped by us who have been discipled, then the saints, through their discipleship, will disciple others. And that's the principle on how the, operation, how the church operates and develops. So uh, it's not just a job that we pastors, elders, and deacons have, but it is for a outward purpose, a forward purpose, and that is to equip the saints that they will be um, functioning and effective um, servants of Christ in the life of the church. All of that built up in love. So if you can have, you can have a great church that is big and beautiful and a wonderful campus and uh, people with lots of money, you know, come and join the church and it's just, uh, you know, just uh, the world will say, oh, wow, amazing. Um, but if it lacks love, I don't want to be in that church. I'd rather be in a church where there is love, where people care about each other, where people are lovingly sacrificing for one another, where people have the focus in mind of, what are we here for? That I am coming on Sunday morning to get something out of the service, out of his preaching? I hope not. Yeah, I hope that you do get something out of it, but you are just not a consumer is what I'm saying. You are consuming so that you will digest. And what you digest will give you the energies that you need to be a faithful servant of Christ in this church. All right, that's a commentary on Ephesians 4. And then we will take a look at um, this uh, reading. And we'll do that together. There are six paragraphs. The sixth one is very short. Um, and I'll make some comments. And if you have questions, feel free to uh, ask afterwards. The glorious body of Christ and some of us who have heard of R.B. Kuyper, uh, he was mentioned yesterday in our uh, talk. Uh, he was um, uh, one of the theologians at uh, Westminster, Philadelphia, uh, professors there. Uh, he wrote a book on the church and that is the title, The Glorious Body of Christ. Um, so um, the theme for this talk message is the love Christ, the love of Christ is to to love Christ, excuse me, to love Christ is to love his church. Um, you know, we live in a time where things in the church aren't always great. Uh, we see its uh, problems and we see uh, leadership failing, moral failures. They, of course, get all the attention, uh, but there are other failures as well. Um, we might uh, use the term system failure. Uh, you know, uh, the life of the church, as it says in this uh, confession, uh, is not um, as it will be uh, when we are in heaven. Um, but to um, love Christ means to love his church. There's a sense in today's society that people say, if asked, um, do you go to church? And they'll say, I haven't been in church for a while, uh, but I love Jesus. Uh, I'm a Christian. 
and I wouldn't doubt that per se, that they are, you know, they claim to be Christians, so I take it at face value. But it is um, an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms to say that you love Christ, but not his church. You may not say that you don't love his church, but by the fact that you stay away from his church, you're staying away from Christ. And that's what, um, I'm jumping around already a bit, but that's what is meant by that uh, phrase that outside the church there is no salvation. Of course we understand that if you are uh, going to war as a soldier and you are, the brother in the back has been, I think, in Afghanistan, correct? No, Iraq. Iraq. Well, not much better. <laughs> Type of situations. You go as a soldier to Iraq and you go there as an unbeliever and you have a crisis and you have the foxhole situation and you reach out to Christ and you repent of your sin and you put your trust, you are saved. There's no doubt about that. There's no church there. There's no sacraments there. There's no ministry of the gospel there at that time and moment. So we're not talking about that you cannot be saved as if the church saves us. And that's what the reformers wanted to say with this statement. They were re repeating a, a statement by Cyprian in his letters in the seventh chapter where he makes that statement uh, that outside the church there is no salvation. It means that in the communion of the community of believers, that's where salvation is found normatively, principally. Um, and therefore, the person who claims to be a Christian must join the church. It's not an option. Um, and that's reflected in our statements, in our Reformed confessions and creeds. Um, well, the first uh, comment in this uh, first chapter uh, paragraph is that um, the Reformers recognize that when you think about the doctrine of the church as it presents, as it presented in God's word, uh, we distinguish between the uh, church invisible and the church visible. In the first part, it talks about the church universal or Catholic, and it's invisible um, from God's perspective. We have our perspective, and from our perspective, all we can deal with is the church visible, right here, church visible. Um, but we don't know, as God knows only, who are all true uh, members of his invisible church. We go by the marks of the church. Uh, how do we know that there is a body of Christ here at this seminary or at the church building down the street? Or perhaps in somebody's home these days when that is becoming more and more uh, normal, uh, normal that there are home churches. Um, we can talk about that more, but uh, how do we know that there's a true body of Christ meeting in assembly? Uh, well, we can only go by what is visible to us, what we can know and see, uh, and that is that there are certain marks that uh, we recognize as marks of a true body of Christ. And um, so it is mentioned in uh, a later paragraph um, that, uh, that would be the fourth one, I suppose, that if the doctrine of the gospel, uh, the gospel is purely preached, faithfully preached. Um, and by the way, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that the preacher can never make a mistake, right? The, the, preacher, the preacher's preaching, the preacher's sermon is not the equivalent of uh, this book. 
the second Helvetic conf uh, Confession of 1563 or 67 maybe um, uh, by, by Heinrich Bullinger um, talks about the uh, preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And again, you have to take that in context. What was meant by that? They knew that the sermon is not the Word of God. But because of the high respect for the Word of God, that preacher had better know. And the elders who have spiritual oversight over the preacher's preaching had better know that at the end of the sermon, they can shake the man's hand as they used to do. The elder would come up and he would shake the pastor's hand and together they would file out and go to the consistory room. And then in the consistory room, in the Reformed tradition anyway, they would have a prayer um, and they would have a very brief discussion of the sermon. Um, and uh, so, so the sense is that the pastor brings the word to us and it is God's word, not his word. Um, but uh, there's the pure preaching of the word, there's the faithful administration of the sacraments, and then there's also what is called the faithful uh, pastoral uh, application of Christian or church discipline. And the uh, practice of church discipline in the reformer's uh, mind at that time was specifically connected with the Lord's Supper. So um, the, the, they understood that it was their pastoral responsibility and duty to uh, be in touch pastorally as shepherds are with their sheep, so the the leadership of the church are with the people of God, and we are close enough to each other. We know each other well enough. That's why mega churches, I think, don't work. They can maybe, but I don't think it's ideal. The churches should be. We, by the way, you know, uh, there are some of us Christians today who think that small is better. You know, like if you're small, then you must be really pure. If you're getting too big, you must be compromising. That I don't believe. But practically speaking, there should be oversight in such a way that I, the pastor, you, uh, uh, the elder, you're not going to be an elder in this church, by the way. I was pointing my finger to you. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but the elder should know that Mrs. So-and-so is struggling in her health or in relationships with her siblings. Um, um, you know, uh, nothing is pure and, and simple. Uh, sometimes there are things that people keep to themselves, you know, and, and as elders in the past, you, you just can't help it that you don't know these things. But if things are known to us, we have fellowship with one another on some uh, ongoing level week by week. We kind of know after a while what are the things that are hurting us, where the opportunities and challenges are in our lives. And so there should be that closeness of shepherd with sheep that is reflected in the life of the church. And it comes to the Lord's Supper then as well, that if we know each other well enough and you know about me that I am, you know, the walk, uh, not looking gospel, I'm, not, uh, I'm compromising, I'm wavering in my faith by what I write on emails or uh, have said to you maybe or um, from sermons, uh, you begin to see that I'm, I'm, uh, my focus is going away from God's word, from God himself. Now you have a responsibility to come to me. And it, can, it is not just the elder, but it can be the individual member of the church who says, Pastor, uh, this is my concern. Can you help me uh, understand what's, what you meant? What, uh, and this is, of course, mutually among ourselves as well true, that if we see that we are 
sensing that we are being pulled away from the gospel life to Babylon, then we have that to shepherd each other, to together grow up in love, in the love of Christ for his sake. And that is expressed ideally at the Lord's Supper table. And no, we don't have tables these days anymore. We sit in our pews and we receive the elements, but there was a day when God's people in the Protestant churches would come forward and then they would, the pastor would be here, the elders would be standing on opposite sides and they were the ones who were the guards of the table and they would then, um, you know, welcome. It's a, it's a welcoming moment after all. But if there is a need for somebody to be shielded off the table, then they have that function as well. Um, and so uh, it's a welcoming time, but you come to the table, you sit around the table as brothers and sisters in Christ because you are following Christ, not in perfection, but in humility and independence on the Holy Spirit. Um, so those are the three marks of a true biblical faithful Church of Christ. But thank the Lord for the Westminster Confession, um, uh, more so than in the, in the uh, three forms of unity. Um, it just makes the point that on this side of heaven, no church is perfect. Uh, don't be looking for your ideal church. You have, first of all, a commitment. You are ordered. I would put it that way. I would, you're ordered to join a church. And boy, if there's only apostate churches in some town where you live, don't join it. You know, then, then, then that is God's extraordinary divine provision in your life or providence in your life that moment. But when there is a body of Christ that love Christ, love his word, manifest faithfulness of the gospel, administration of the sacraments, care for one another pastorally, you ought to join that church of Christ um, because that would honor him um, and glorify him. So who are the church? Well, the church is, as God sees it, the invisible church. It is also the, the church that, as we see it, we said, the visible church that has the three marks of being recognized as a true church um, and with the recognition that on this side of heaven, no church is perfect. Um, it uses the terminology of more or less pure. Um, yeah, and that's just a frank uh, common sense acknowledgement, I think, that uh, there is no pure church in its purest sense possible on this side of heaven. Um, and I think that is a helpful thing. Um, some people are, yeah, we're all different. Uh, we have different backgrounds, uh, but uh, you know, um, uh, some people, if they don't like something, they walk. You know, they just uh, are kind of in a hurry to you know, go somewhere else. And those people go from one church to another, to another, to another, to another, and no church is ever good enough. Uh, don't be like that, please. Um, Christ sat at the table with a Judas. And that is not an argument to say that you shouldn't fence off the table, by the way. But Christ laid down his life for Peter, who denied him three times. So the church has wrinkles, scars, and so forth. But when the marks are there, then join that church. Stay at that church. Not everything is going your way, 
be gracious, be flexible, be accommodating. Um, because the three main points are the three main points, and the other things are secondary. Who is the boss in the church? Is it the Pope? August says yes. <laughs> um, it's a very historical document, obviously. So it's written in the 1600s, and it was still believed that the Pope was the Antichrist, for one thing. Um, and uh, because he claimed Christ's place. And so that was rightly deemed wrong. But we, in the Protestant tradition, can have our own popes. And sometimes that's the pastor, when we as elderships allow him to be the pope, quote unquote. Um, we have to be careful that in all things, we are serving one head, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he alone is Lord. I can't quote it, I can't remember the words that were spoken, but there was a statement made by the Pope this past week, somewhere, where I see it as blasphemy, where he arrogated to himself um, the qualities of Christ as the head of the church, the sovereign. Christ is sovereign. We are servants. And I know I'm, I'm brushing with broad strokes. We could have a Catholic person come in right now and say, well, that's just not exactly what he meant and so forth. But it is interesting that what one brother reminded me of um, some time ago uh, who said, when you listen to the statements that popes make in the last 20 years or so, there have been several ones, of course, uh, by succession, um, that they often talk more about the church than Jesus. Because they're so uh, absorbed by the idea that they are in Jesus' chair as his visible earthly representation. And that has to do with the whole Catholic theology, of course, which is sacramental and mystical and, um, you know, that goes into the, 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 the attributes of uh, the sacrament of the Eucharist. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's not helpful to think of leadership in the church in terms of monarchy. Um, we are servants. We're not kings. Um, and so that's the last point that uh, this chapter 25 ends with, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. No one, not Pope or anyone, can be the head thereof. Any questions or observations? Yes, Tim. question to ask, because I think you're totally right that we're heading in that direction where uh, you're going to, uh, because of need prompting 